takes a little getting used to that different tune, but I think, at least personally, I prefer that to the other one, but, um, you know, words are the best part of that hymn. Well, Ephesians 1 and verse 11. I'm sure you know about uh, King George VI, who was king of England, and that uh, December 25th, 1939, on the threshold of the war, he gave a speech to the empire. It, was, uh, a, it involved a quote from a poem that I just discovered had been given to him by his then 13-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. And he quoted from that poem, and at the culmination of his uh, speech, he quoted this part of that poem. It said, uh, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be better than light and safer than a known way. Very powerful and and yet I'd suggest that the uh, the amount of comfort that you derive from from that quote and from the reality depends really in large measure on the nature of the God into whose hand you put your hand. And I want to try and show you this morning the nature of God, your God, this God, um, who's... Uh, into whose hand you place your hand. This God with whom you walk into the future. Now, imagine that the passage that we're looking at, verses 3 to 14, imagine that that's a a velvet bag full of uh, priceless jewels. And you reach in, and from the midst of all of these jewels, these treasures, you... You draw out just a a large and sparkling diamond. And that's really what verse 11 is. Verse 11 is a precious stone amidst a myriad of precious stones. As we think about this truth and this passage, this verse this morning, I hope that you and I will be dazzled as we think about this God with whom we have fellowship and this God who works out all things according to the counsel of His will. So that's our text then, verse 11, and particularly that last part of verse 11. The text says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, And now this is going to be our focus. Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, you're going to see two two truths in this text. You're going to see the decree of God and then the providence of God. Think about two words here in the text. Think about the word will. According to the counsel of His will. Now, there are two aspects to the will of God. 
There's God's will of decree, and there's God's will of desire. Two aspects to God's will. God's will of decree and His will of desire. His decree, that which He mandated, His decree is everything that happens in history. His desire is what He would like to happen. Now, His decree is everything that happens. And He has not decreed everything that He desires. But everything that He decrees will happen. So, His will of decree, that's everything that happens in history. And then His will of desire, those are things that He wants to happen, but He's not decreed everything He wants. But we know that everything He decrees will happen. Now, for instance, God wants you to be perfectly holy. That's a desire. He wants that. And we read about that in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, be holy as I am holy. So God right now wants you to be holy. But clearly, He's not decreed that because evidently, we're not perfect. But what God decrees, that will happen. So you can see there a distinction between his will of decree and his will of desire. So the focus of our text is his will of decree. Everything is being worked out according to his will. According to his will of decree. According to what God decreed, that's what's happening in the world. So there's the word will. Secondly, you have the word work. The word work. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the outworking of his will is providence. We talk about the providence of God. That's God working out his will in time and space. God is busy making sure that everything he has decreed comes to pass in time and space. History, we often say, is his story. Every detail in history is the outworking of what he decreed. Everything that happens is happening as God planned that it should happen. And in this wonderful passage, we are seeing that God, who works all things after the counsel of his will, is working out a will that involves your salvation and involves the blessing of his people in these extraordinary ways. And the God who wants to bless his people in all of these ways designed that he should bless his people in these ways, decreed that he would bless his people in these ways, and in time and space, that's precisely what he's doing. It's an extraordinary thing to think, then, that our God, the God you know and love, the God you this morning already have called Abba Father, this God works all things after the counsel of his will. So to this we turn our attention this morning, and we're going to think about God's will, first of all, and then our response. So we'll begin with God's will, and we need to realize that everything in general history, everything that happens in the world, and everything that happens in your personal history is being worked out according to the will of God. It's all according to the will of God. So we need to understand, we need to think about 
the nature of God's will. So what can we say about the will of God? Well, the first thing we'll say is that God's will is eternal. God's will is eternal. Sometimes people fly by the seat of their pants. They seem to be living their life and they're making it up as they're going along. That's not God. We read, for instance, in the 1689 Confession, and you can access uh, a modern English version of the 1689 on our church website. And uh, in chapter 3, concerning God's decree, it says this, From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of Himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably. Now, that's absolutely astounding. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs. So, before the world was, and before you existed, and when there was only God, God had a plan. And we know that that plan involves, well, look at verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So that, that counsel, that plan, that will involves, among a multitude of other things, choosing you, if you're a Christian, choosing you to save you by the blood of Christ and bring you into relationship with Himself. Choosing you out of a fallen humanity, not all of whom He chose, but He chose you. And He chose you before the foundation of the world to be saved. What's more, part of that plan involved the giving of grace to you. Before the world was, He chose to give grace to you. Listen to this, 2 Timothy 1.9. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's 2 Timothy 1.9. So before the ages began, you were placed in Christ, and God gave grace to you. So yes, God has a plan. He always had a plan, and His plan that He always had involves everything. That's astounding. I don't know if you ever read uh, Stephen Leacock. Uh, occasionally I do. And he writes about a, a wonderful character named Lord Ronald. And he writes this about Lord Ronald. He says, Lord Ronald said nothing. He flung himself from the room. He flung himself upon his horse and rode madly off in all directions. Which I find just so amusing. So Lord Ronald has no plan. He just goes. And sometimes we live our lives that way. God always has a plan. He always had a plan. And he's always putting that plan into effect. God's will is eternal. God's will, secondly, is sovereign. You and I are not sovereign. We sometimes think we are. We sometimes try to be because we like to control things, but we're not and we're weak. 
The great Pascal said, since men are unable to cure death, misery, and ignorance, they imagine they can find happiness by not thinking about such things. Now, that doesn't work, does it? But the fact is, we try to do that because we can't do anything about things. We're weak and we are unable. God, on the other hand, is all-powerful. God can do whatever He wants. It is said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, none can stay His hand. That is, God puts out His hand to do something and nobody can stop Him. None can stay His hand. Nobody can say to Him, what are you doing? God is sovereign. Romans 9.19 says, Who can resist His will? And, of course, Paul expects that the answer will be, well, no one can. No one can resist the will of God. God's will is a sovereign will. Once He's decreed, it must come to pass. We read Isaiah 46, verse 10, with which we began the service. God says, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. That which I've decreed, I will bring to pass. He will work all things after the counsel of His will. God's will is sovereign. You see, God is irresistible. God is unstoppable. And whatever God has planned will come to pass. We read these words in Psalm 33, verses 8 to 12. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of Him. Now listen to this. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. It goes on. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Now listen to this. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. And so the conclusion. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom He has chosen as His heritage, and that's you and I. We are blessed because our God, well, His, His will is sovereign, and His counsel shall stand, and nobody can stop Him. His will is eternal, and His will is sovereign. And thirdly, His will is comprehensive. His will is comprehensive. That is, it covers everything. You remember what the uh, confession says, God decreed everything that occurs. And our text says that God is working out all things after the counsel of His will. All things. So what does all things mean? Well, all things means all things. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. It's, it's all things. What does the Greek word mean? The Greek word means all things. So it's pretty clear. God controls all things. Now, not all Christians understand this. Not all Christians recognize this. Uh, John Riesinger, in a book, uh, a little pamphlet called uh, The Sovereignty of God and Providence, same material that he preached at Kerry Conference years and years ago, he says this, it smacks of a story that he made up, to be honest with you, but he says it happened, so you can make up your mind. But it illustrates the truth. He says, a young nurse who worked in the emergency ward of a hospital told me, that's where he says, oh, this is real, but, you know, whatever. He says, a young nurse who worked in the emergency ward of a hospital told me that when anyone from a particular church in that town had an accident, the pastor would rush down to the hospital, and his first words to the victim and family were, remember, God had nothing to do with this. 
Okay. Now, whether that actually happened or not, um, or whether it's pastoral and preacher license taking place here, it illustrates the fact that this is what we kind of do. We want to protect God from the evil things that happen in the world. We want to make sure that nobody thinks he's responsible for this. But that kind of thing and that kind of perspective is of no real help to us and is of no real benefit and affords us really no comfort in a hard and a difficult world. When terrible things happen, we need God to be there. When horrific things happen in our lives, we need a God who is big enough to have a big plan that encompasses even these kinds of things. We want a God who is grand and glorious enough so that His plan, even though it raises awkward questions for us, and it does, but still we know our God is in control. And so we're thankful then when we read in the Bible that God is in control and His plan involves everything. His plan is comprehensive. And God's plan controls, among other things, well, the universe in general. Because Psalm 103 says, His kingdom rules over all. He controls the universe in general. He controls the physical, universe, the physical world. Psalm 104 says, You cause the grass to grow. Something that we don't even think about, God caused that to happen. So when the grass comes spring, when everything sprouts, well, God caused that. A little while ago, when we had a snowstorm, Job says that God did that. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. That's Job 37, verse 6. When snow falls, it's because God said to it, fall. So nothing escapes the will of God. Nothing's outside of the will of God. God controls the brute creation. What our Lord tells us about the birds instructs us that when in your family a pet dies, it's not out of control. It's under the will of God. It's controlled under the will of God. The death of that pet, that cat, that dog, whatever the case may be, that's all part of the plan of God. God controls the rise and fall of nations. Job 12, He makes nations great and He destroys them. God does that. He makes them rise up to great power and He brings them down to nothing. I was learning this week about Alexander the Great. Fascinating story. Fascinating life. In many ways, a horrible man. But somehow he's called Alexander the Great. And I thought to myself, now when did that start? Did it start during his life? I mean, did he start signing his name to his checks? Alexander the Great. That'll work. Now how does that start in history? I don't know. But I know this, that whatever happened, whatever he accomplished, so that someone said, hmm, Alexander the Great. That's God did that. God raised him up. God made him a great, well, a great soldier, not a great governor. God did all that. Random events. Perhaps you've played games recently 
roll the dice. You roll the dice. Proverbs 16, 33 says that God made dots come up, and when it came up three, God did that. That'll help you to behave properly in a game because you know that, ah, oh, wrong number came up. Well, God did that. The evil deeds of men are under the control of God. You remember what Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. So perhaps you've suffered at the hands of people. And perhaps what they intended was quite sinful. But God's will is a will that controls everything, including their actions. And what happened that was so evil and designed to hurt you would not have happened had not God permitted it. God's in control of all the details. Listen to this. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the message, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. God knows, you see, that, that great events turn on small details. And God is in control of the smallest detail. That's why what Spurgeon said is so important. Even the dust that you see dancing around in the sunbeam. It doesn't move one spot but for the control of God. There are no maverick atoms. You know, there's an atom in the universe that just does whatever it wants. I'm, I'm free. I've thrown off my constraints. I'm an atom that can just move as I wish. No, there's not one maverick atom in the world. There's not one maverick cancer cell that decides of its own volition, I'm going to destroy the life of this child of God. No such thing. God's will is comprehensive. It covers everything. So, you have to be careful then when you say, this is a God thing. You know how we do that? We, we're very selective. We pick something unusual that happens and something good that happens. It's got to be unusual, got to be striking, got to be good. And we say, oh, that's a God thing. But when you hear the doctor say it's cancer, do you say, hmm, that's a God thing. But in truth, it is. Everything that happens is a God thing. That's what this verse means. It means that God's will is comprehensive. There are no bits that are outside of the will of God. No, he works out all things after the counsel of his will. So Lloyd-Jones is right when he comments on Romans 8.28. It seems perfectly clear to me that ultimately God is thus concerned with everything for the sake of his own people, and that everything is being manipulated for our benefit and our good. God's will is it's comprehensive. But next, it's also mysterious. God's will is is mysterious. Now, now, TJ is not here. Maybe he's watching. But if you, if TJ were at the back and you got out your math book and you went over to TJ and you sat down on the ground and you put your math book in front of him and you start telling him about 
all kinds of math problems that you're trying to wrestle with this week. And you say, well, now, TJ, tell me, what's the solution to this problem here? And he looks at you and he thinks, well, he doesn't think, does he? If you said, TJ, treat, well, he understands that. But, TJ, calculus, nope, just a little bit, a little bit beyond him. I think that's how we feel in front of God and his plans and his purposes and the puzzles of life and the mysteries of the universe. For instance, how can God plan everything, bring it to pass without forcing people to do things against their will? How can he do that? How can God control the Holocaust and not in some way be responsible and remain perfectly holy? I don't know. How can a world have so much suffering in it and still the plan that encompasses all of that suffering is perfectly holy and wise and good? I'm not sure I can answer that. How can God be happy perfectly happy when there is a hell? I don't know. You see, there's so much that we don't understand, and sometimes we kind of just stare at all this the way TJ would stare at calculus, like, don't know. You see, that's what we... That's what we sang about. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea where we cannot see them, where we do not grasp them. We don't understand. And we have to be content with that because he's God and we are not. God's will is mysterious. mysterious. God's will is gracious. His will includes the saving of a people. It includes the saving of your soul. It includes drawing you to himself. The whole passage here is focused on how God pours out blessing on people like you and I. Blessings innumerable and blessings, some of which those blessings are listed here in the passage. And as God brings his will to pass in time and space, he works all things so that his people will be saved. God's providence is useful in God's purposes in bringing His elect to a saving knowledge of Himself. For instance, we read about um, John Newton, March 21st, 1748. Newton's on a, a slave trading ship, and he's on his way back to England. And there's a terrible, terrible storm in the Mid-Atlantic that hits the ship, and everybody is about to, everybody's about their business and trying to save the ship and trying to keep it afloat. Newton steps forward and he's about to move to the front. I'm not sure what the technical term is, but the front of the boat and he's going to tend the sails there. But the captain at that moment, as he's about to move forward to do his job up there, the captain grabs his attention and says, I think something like, go and get a knife over here or something. So diverts his attention, sends him over here. Another sailor goes forward to do the job that Newton was about to do, and he's no sooner there than he's swept overboard. And he's lost. And Newton never forgets that. 
Immediately after that, he starts to seek the Lord and is converted. And for the next 50 years, he remembers that day with praise and fasting and prayers and how God, in his providence, in the outworking of his mysterious will, is gracious to the man, spares him so that he might be saved. That's the kind of thing that happened to you. God's will is gracious. And then God's will is wise. This is a wise will. Now, do you believe this? We sing this kind of thing, and we say, we say for I know that whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. And we sing that, and we like the song, and it's nice and wonderful, and then things happen in our lives, and we're furious, or we're devastated, or we're angry, or we're bitter. But we sang, for I know Whatever befalls me, all things, Jesus doeth all things well. I mean, do you really believe that? God's will is wise. Are you confident that it's the all-wise God who works all things after the counsel of His will? It's the God who is supremely wise, the God who cannot do anything foolish, the God to whom no answers are hidden. He's the one who does and, and orchestrates all the details of your life. Spurgeon, Spurgeon struggled with ill health. He was wonderfully blessed of God in so many ways, but he did struggle with ill health. And he said this. He said, I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in my library. When things happen that are troubling, we remember God is wise. He knows what's best. I don't think this makes any sense, but God is all wise. I had a friend who had a daughter who struggled just terribly with awful, awful health, ill health. And he, he said to her, if I had God's power, I would change your situation. And if I had God's wisdom, I wouldn't change a thing. That's a tough thing to say, but it's right. In one of his morning and evenings, Spurgeon says, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. So, it doesn't matter what the situation is. Because God is wise, the situation you're in is the best one for you. Because He knows what's best. We can be thankful then that the God who works all things after the counsel of His will, including all the details of your life, because you're a child of His, He's doing what's best for you. God is too wise to be mistaken, too good to be unkind. That's your God. And then lastly, this will of God, God's will is unchanging. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So all the wonderful things we've been thinking about concerning the, the will of God, that cannot change. You won't wake up tomorrow and say, well, everything's gone to pot because God is different now. 
Somehow he's different. You know how changeable we are and the wind blows and, oh, we're someone quite different than we were yesterday? That's not God. God is unchanging. God is immutable. And so his will is unchanging and is immutable. And so the wonderful things that we've been thinking about the will of God, that never changes. It's true today. It always was true and it always will be. That's why it's wonderful to put your hand into the hand of God. And in that way, you walk into the future. That's a safe place. It's the will of God. Now, more quickly, our response. How do we respond to this? Well, first of all, we respond with submission. Submission. If we believe that all things are being worked out according to God's will, and that God's will then is good and wise, well, we have to submit. And we have to submit willingly. And we must even submit happily. It's easy to submit to good things. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think you do. It's hard to submit to bad things, to things we think of as bad, to things that are troubling to us. But when you look to the Bible, you find that there are people who submit to bad things, things that are deeply troubling. Think of Aaron, whose sons are killed, and he shuts his mouth, and he keeps silent, and he bridles his passions. He submits to the will of God. Or think of Eli, whose sons are going to be judged. And Eli says this, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 3. Or David. Shimei comes along and just heaps abuse on David. And David's loyal soldiers say, Let us put an end to this dog. And David says, Let him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has bidden him to do so. He Submits, you see. He submits to the Lord. Submitting will save you from bitterness and sourness. Submitting will save you from bitterness and sourness. When you submit to what you know to be the wise and good will of God, you submit to that, and even though you don't see the wisdom, even though you don't feel the goodness, you submit to it, you say, well, this is the Lord. I'll happily submit to it. When you do that, you are delivered from bitterness and sourness. Bitterness may be, may be thought of as, as looking back negatively. You know, you look at what's happened, you just grumble. Because it's all, they, I can't believe they did that to me. And sourness is looking at your present circumstances and your future, future prospects just negatively. Oh, everything went wrong, it's wrong now, and it's going to get worse. Bitter and sour. I mean, do you know people like that? Or do you sometimes look in the mirror at people like that? If you're submissive to the will of God, you'll be delivered from being people like that. We learn to submit. And in learning to submit, we learn to be content and to be even glad. Because you remember what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned to be content no matter what the circumstances. You see, there's that kind of comprehensive word. All things are being worked out according to the will of God. I've learned to submit no matter what the circumstances. To be content. Even, Paul says, to the point of being hungry. You and I 
What's Christmas and New Year been like? We're not hungry. Uh, but uh, like Paul, we want to learn to submit and be content. So submission, Jeremiah Burroughs says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If you want, I'll get that quote to you because it is well worth meditation. So, implications. Submission. Secondly, trust. Trust. If you believe that your God is working everything after the counsel of His will, and furthermore, that everything involves your temporal and eternal good, then you can trust it. Then you don't need to understand. It doesn't need to make sense to you. You don't have to see all the ins and outs and all the whys and wherefores. You trust Him. You know that the God of the universe, the sovereign God whose mysterious will is sovereignly being worked out, and that will involves your lasting and eternal good and encompasses everything horrific that happens to you, well, you can trust Him. You can be confident in that God. And when bad things happen in the past and you're still bitter about it, you, you rethink that now because you see God's hand in it. And when you're afraid of the future and you're concerned about bad things happening there, you rethink that because you know that every detail that's going to happen, that's part of the sovereign plan of God who designs it for your good. So you walk by faith. You're someone who trusts. A woman named Mary Baird wrote a poem which was being revised a little bit by Philip Bliss, who wrote, Hallelujah, What a Savior!, and, um, but I want to read two verses from that poem to you. Here are the two. He says, and she says, I know not what awaits me. That's how you go into a year. I mean, people can say, well, this is going to be a year of this and that. And Well, no, you don't know anything, actually. I know not what awaits me. God kindly veils mine eyes. And o'er each step on my onward way he makes new scenes to rise. And every joy he sends me comes a sweet and glad surprise. So on I go not knowing, I would not if I might. I'd rather walk in the dark with God than go alone in the light. I'd rather walk in faith with him than go alone by sight. You trust him. So submission and trust. And before we move on to the last one, if you're not a Christian, if you understand what I'm saying, that should make you say, well, I want to be a Christian. I mean, who would not want to be a Christian when that's the kind of God you have? Who's working everything after the counsel of His will and for the good of His people. You want to call that God your God. That's why you need to believe in the Lord Jesus, you see. And then you'll join us for the last implication, which is praise. God is to be praised. This God, this God of verse 11, 
This God who works everything after the counsel of His will. This God is to be praised. I mean, surely. He's to be praised for His being. When I was thinking about this verse, this line from this hymn popped into my head, How great a being, Lord, is Thine. A God who can do this. Spend a few moments this afternoon thinking about how can God do this? I mean, everything is being worked out. All things in time and space are being controlled so that they bring to pass in every detail what he planned. I mean, you're happy if just the vague bits of the detailed plan you had in some way can be explained as being the outworking of your plan. God brings everything to pass according to the particular details of his purpose. How can he do that? How great a being, Lord, is thine. And then we praise him for his being and for his blessings. We read in this text, I have a lot more to say about this inheritance, but I don't have time. This inheritance, we have an inheritance. Part of God's plan is that he saves us and then he blesses us with an inheritance. We have an inheritance, Peter says, it's saved up, it's preserved in heaven. It is incorruptible. It cannot be corrupted, cannot be defiled, cannot be stolen away. We have an inheritance in glory. What's more, we are an inheritance. Another way you can translate verse 11 is that we've been made an inheritance. We are God's inheritance. We are God's gift to His Son. Remember in John 11, Jesus repeatedly says, those whom the Father has given to me. You, if you're a Christian, God the Father gave you to His Son, and His Son saved you, and you're part of His inheritance. That's extraordinary. So you have an inheritance. You've been made an inheritance. You've been blessed beyond your wildest imaginations. That's part of the plan of God, you see. And so, yeah, we submit to the will of God. It's wise and good. But we trust this God who's wise and good. And we praise this God because what a great God who can do this. And we praise Him because what good things He's granted to us. Lord willing, in just a little while, you get a bookmark. Stick it up somewhere where you can see it. And remember, every day of the year, every detail of every day, God's planned that. It's according to a wise and good plan for your good and for His glory. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we want to praise you and thank you for your extraordinary goodness in planning and bringing to pass in time a will that is good and wise for your glory and for our good. Receive our praise, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.